Good morning. If we stood with John on Patmos and looked eastward, we would be looking in the general direction of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If we mapped out the location of those churches, it would look like an inverted U. So as we hear Jesus say to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea write these things, Jesus is addressing a small cluster of seven churches in the ancient world. This morning, we would like to look at the second church, the church at Smyrna, and I would like to consider two questions. One, when we see other people suffer, how do we react? And two, what should we remember when we are going through periods of suffering? And reading our text from Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us as we look at your word to understand it and be touched by it, moved and changed by it. We ask, we ask for, your, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Smyrna was situated 40 miles northwest of Ephesus. It was an important port city located at the eastern tip of the Mediterranean on Turkey's Aegean coast. It was conquered and rebuilt by Alexander the Great later on taken over by the Roman Empire before a long period of Byzantine rule, and then eventually became part of the Ottoman Empire around the 15th century. Today, the city is named Izmir. It has a population of about 4 million people, and it's famous for its export of dried fruit and in particular dates. Sometimes when you're at the grocery store and you buy dried dates, if you look, sometimes you'll see that they're from Izmir. In ancient times, they worshipped an idol that the Greeks called Dionysus and the Romans called Bacchus. This cult had many forms and permutations, but some, form, some forms believed that Dionysus was the dying and rising God. They believed that he died and was born a second time as the son of Zeus. In listening to Jesus' description of himself in the passage, this becomes relevant. Jesus says, these are the words of him who was first and last, who died and came to life again. Of course, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected the third day. But certain elements of society in Smyrna believed Dionysus had died and came to life again as the son of Zeus. Also, among people of faith, among Christians and Jews, they were aware that they had a number of stories in their scriptures of people that died and came to life again. For example, you remember Lazarus, Jesus' friend. And Jesus stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came from the land of the dead into the land of the living. 
You remember also when Jesus spoke to the widow at Nain, and, and I believe he spoke to her gently. And then he they resurrected, in a sense, he brought her son back from the dead. You remember there's even stories in the Old Testament, the story, for example, of Elijah and the widow's son, when Elijah brought him back from the dead, or God did, and he, allowed, he, he used Elijah to do it. Although the concept of one dying and coming back from the dead is spectacular, as you can see in the examples that I gave, it's not a, they're not entirely unique. So Jesus adds a different description to himself in Revelation 2 and 8, and he says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. This phrase is used throughout the Old and New Testament to describe our God, who compared to man-made gods is different. He is eternal and self-sufficient. Many passages demonstrate this. I have chosen one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament to illustrate this. Isaiah 44, 6 says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Revelation 21, 6 and 7 at the end of the Bible says this, the Lord says, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So in the introduction of this passage, Jesus shows us that he is unique, that he stands above all, that he is the Lord of all. So it makes sense to us when we read other passages that talks about him, in the same tones, it says, Jesus said about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. A great question that I must answer and all of us must answer is, who is Jesus and what will we do with him? Many believe the worship of Dionysus was widespread throughout Asia Minor, perhaps as far as India. It has strong associations with sexual immorality and the excessive drinking of wine. The worshiper believed that, by, that they would be indwelt by Dionysus and receive special benefits as they partook in these activities. While there are no other special, specific references to Smyrna in the New Testament, New Testament some feel that passages that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church actually addressed the allure of this cult, which was widespread through the ge ge geography of the seven churches. Ephesians 5 and 18 is interesting in this regard. Do not get drunk, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. If Paul is addressing the influence of Dionysus, not only in this city in Smyrna, but in the general geography of the seven churches and beyond, Paul is simply repeating what Jesus taught us in John 6 and 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. We look for joy and satisfaction in many areas of life. Often we are attracted and captivated by immediate physical experience. But Jesus offers more in Smyrna, People fill their lives with mind-altering substances, an excessive focus on sexual pleasure, 
But there is never enough to satisfy our deepest longings. I remember as a teenager sitting in a bar and someone showing me a bag with some dope in it and the person said, I would share it with you if I had enough. I was not a Christian at the time, but I remember thinking, well, how much is enough? If you had two bags, if you had 10 bags, would that be enough? And this issue is common to human experience. There is never enough to completely satisfy our deepest longings and our desires. Jesus offers to come into our life and to bring true light, real joy, sustainable hope, and a future spent with him. And to secure this, he offers us forgiveness for our sins. We see this in our passage. Jesus says about himself, these are the words of him who died and came to life again. Jesus died on the cross for me and for you because he loves us and he offers us forgiveness and pardon. In your home today, you can do what I did many years ago. You can tell Jesus that you are sorry for your sins and you want him to be in your life as your Lord and your Savior. Maybe you are a believer this morning and you have wandered away from him. Today is a day to turn back and to come home. Let him speak new life into you. He loves you and wants you. And like the story of the widow at Nain or Lazarus, he can bring a revived spiritual life to your soul. And he's calling you to come home today. We have looked at an introduction of Smyrna and a little bit about at the passage. And now I would like to address the two questions that I mentioned previously. Before I do, I ask myself, what is the singular thought I see in this passage? And the thing I see is the reality of suffering. Revelation 2 and 10 says this, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. Suffering is not popular. Often we avoid the subject. I don't desire suffering in my life and most people don't. I would like to consider suffering from two perspectives, the personal experience of suffering and our reaction to others when they go through suffering and pain. The other day, I read an interesting thought. Now you can agree or disagree with this, it's just something I read and I found it interesting. The, the individual said we live through an experience a hundred years of history compressed into the last five months. He said we are living through a global pandemic and there was a 1918 Spanish flu, of course. We've seen an unprecedented economic collapse and he mentioned the 1929 depression, which really went into the mid 1930s. We've seen a presidential president impeached and people my age I can remember watching TV and seeing the impeachment process for Mr. Nixon in 1973 and 1974. And we've seen extreme strain and stress in race relationships. And we can remember different periods of time in our life, but especially the 1960s where there was great turmoil. Now, you don't have to agree with all the details and you might say, well, they're not equivalent, but it's just an example to say this. It illustrates that today people really are suffering. So the question is this, how do I, as a believer, interact with other people in their suffering and in their pain? 
I find Acts 10 very interesting in this regard. Peter was explaining who Jesus was to the Gentile Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And Peter said that Jesus was someone who went around doing good. Now we understand Jesus' primary purpose was to come and redeem us. But while he was among us, he was kind and he helped people in their temporary suffering. And I believe I need to do the same. Let's take one example from what we are living through, the exposure of the terrible pain and fear that many feel and live through because of the color of their skin. Now, some of you might immediately think, well, this is, David is exaggerating now. This is a terrible exaggeration. But my personal opinion is it's not a terrible exaggeration. Over the last few weeks, I've heard the testimony of many people from the highest levels of the military, both Canadian and American, uh, many sports professionals, high-profile artists, academics, uh, leaders in the realm of faith, and even politicians on the Canadian and American side who all say the same thing, that they have suffered and at times continue to suffer because of their skin color, and perhaps even worse than that, that they are fearful for their children. Now, this is something that I cannot really relate to, if I'm going to be honest. But I think that it is not right. And as believers, we must be the first to decry this evil. The foundation of our faith is built on the acknowledgement that all of us are equal. When our children were young, we often sang gospel songs with them, and we would sing the little chorus that you probably sang with your children. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. We sing the hymn Amazing Grace and are proud that its author was a really a form, was a former slave trader who came to Christ and realized he had done terrible things to human beings. And he changed his view and he changed his practice with God's help. We see William Wilberforce, who was a British politician in the 1800s as a hero, as he worked to abolish slavery in the British Empire, uh, really battling very uh, strong, powerful political and economic forces that were against him. Now, we have these views because we've been taught by God that we are all equal and that people of all races and color need to be treated with dignity and with respect. In Genesis, we read, let us make man in our image. God created um, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Africa, many years ago, I was preaching in a park in the city of Mombasa. And a man came up to me who looked angry and asked me this question. He said, what color was Adam? I said, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say what color Adam was. But I understood that his question was loaded with misunderstanding, hurt, bitterness, possibly anger, and resentment. My biblical opinion is that our response to people suffering from racial violence matters and requires certain things. I think the first thing it requires is that we listen to their suffering. We probably won't understand it completely. Because many of us 
have not experienced it. We've experienced other hardships, but not many of us who are white have experienced the pain and fear um, of, of, of people being against us because of the color of our skin. Secondly, we must support their desire and effort to be treated fairly, being able to live in the same peace and security that we feel, being able to be free from fear when their loved ones go out for routine activities like going to the barber or shopping or getting a pizza. I think that as Christians, we must refrain from words, posts, tweets that diminish that central issue, which is not which is that many non-white people suffer because of their skin color. Now, we might not like that. It might be hard even for us to understand, because as I've said, many of us have not experienced that. But I believe it is true. I read a number of posts this week that really distressed me. They discussed Mr. Floyd's moral character and negative tones. He was the man that died while being kneeled on by those police officers in Minneapolis. Now, obviously, I don't know, I did not know Mr. Floyd, but this is not the central point. I don't know if he had a good character, or I don't know if he had a bad character, or I don't know if he was like us, somewhere in the middle. I don't know that. But the central point is this. We are not saying that people treat, let's treat people with dignity only when we deem them worthy. This is not the message of the gospel. This is not how Jesus treated the Samaritan woman in John 4. So let us please be gracious and remember three things. When people go through pain and suffering, it is not the time to focus on negative, hurtful, and divisive things. Secondly, when people die, it is perfectly normal that people focus on the positive. I read some criticisms about his funeral. But, you know, it's normal that when somebody dies, we focus on the positive. One day I'm going to die, and, and if, you, if you're around and you go to my funeral, uh, you might say negative things about me to, to Louise, but it's doubtful that you go up to Louise in her moment of grief and say, you know, David bored me to death with his sermons. Um, David, sometimes I didn't like his attitude, things like that. Most probably, you'll say nothing or you'll find something positive to say. And that's all that we saw that was happening this week. So there was no really no need to criticize that process. And thirdly, let us never try to diminish people's pain by using different strategies to deny it. If people have pain, they know it. And so either our role is, if you can't say something positive, don't say anything. But really, don't go out of your way to deny that, because that just compounds the hurt and the pain. Now, we deal a little bit with how we can react to people suffering. And I've used the, the common example because it's, it's all around us right now. All around the world, people are responding to, to that issue. But of course, it applies to all kinds of different things that people are suffering. Sickness, financial hardship, uh, emotional pain. We need to be sensitive and respond to people when we can. What about personal suffering? Well, there are many comforting truths found in this passage about when I suffer. For example, Jesus knows and recognizes the suffering that we go through. Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, I know your affliction. 
and your poverty. In difficult times, it is a comfort to know that Jesus sees, he knows, and he cares about us. And his words come to us like John 14, 6, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Or John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or John 10, 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Also, Jesus is aware when we are misunderstood. Jesus said in the passage, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And if you're listening to this message and you're not a believer, uh, this is nothing, this is not a slight against Jewish people. All that is being said there was, we don't know this group of people, that, but there were a group of people in Smyrna who were spreading false information about these believers. And Jesus says they were not truly practicing their Jewish faith. Jesus knows our future. This is another comforting thought. In Revelation 2.10, basically he's saying he knows what's going to happen to us. And also, Jesus comforts us by telling us there is going to be an end point to our suffering. You will suffer persecution 10 days. In other words, there is hope for the future. So in the middle of this extraordinary period of time that we're living through, as one man said, we are really living a hundred years of human history inside five months. What does the passage leave us with? A call to faithfulness. Be faithful even to the point of death. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.